2024 marks the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force with celebrations and events planned to honor those who have served and those serving today while inspiring the next generation of RCAF personnel. Visit rcaf2024arc.ca to learn about the RCAF's past and current fleet of more than 200 aircraft, plus the many planned activities including air shows, e-gaming tournaments, the RCAF Run, Canadian Tulip Festival, and STEM activities for youth. Then, on April 1st, in recognition of the positive impact the RCAF has had worldwide, businesses, cities, and landmarks around the world will be illuminating in Air Force Blue to celebrate the occasion. Join the fun. Illuminate your residence or place of work in blue to show your support while joining a world record attempt for the most landmarks illuminated within 24 hours. And when you do, share a picture on social media using hashtag RCAF2024, hashtag RCAF100, or hashtag Your Air Force. Again, RCAF2024ARC.ca to learn more about the Royal Canadian Air Force Centennial. Hey everyone, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello, and this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we're trying something different. We're airing an authentic media snapshot, as we call it. It's a portion of one of the shows that are military aviation-based from our friends over at Authentic Media. I think you're going to enjoy it. Here we go. This is Authentic. All right, everybody, welcome back to F-22. We are starting formally with episode one. Back with me today is Scar Van Timmerman. Hi, Scar. Hey, Scott. How you doing? I'm doing great. And our guest today is Tom B.A. Borrego. How are you doing, B.A.? I'm doing great, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Oh, appreciate you being here. So, B.A., tell us about yourself, how you got to the Air Force, your commissioning source, sort of your flight training pipeline, and how you came to fly the mighty B-52. No, no, we're here talking about the F-22 today. It is I a mighty right. B-52, definitely. Yeah. A mighty <laughs> yeah. I'd be proud to fly that. But uh, Absolutely. I'm an, I'm an Army brat. I grew up in Maryland and went to ROTC at uh, MIT. That's how I got my commissioning. After that, Air Force Pipeline, uh, pilot training in the T-37, T-38. And I started off my career in the F-15C, the mighty Eagle. Okay. I transitioned to the F-22 in 2005 as part of the Air Force's first combat squadron. That was out in Virginia. I mm-hmm. uh, got, a, got a lovely tour in Alaska, gorgeous flying up there, and then did nine years in operational test. That's out in Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas. Um, and I finished my flying career up as the uh, commander for the F-15C and F-22 weapons school. So Nice. Yeah, thanks again for having me on, Scott. Oh, absolutely. So, okay. So, uh, MIT grad, F-22 pilot, commander of the weapons school, not intimidated at all here. Okay. We're, we're, <laughs> yeah, we're I was going to say, just to, <laughs> yeah. just to make sure everybody understands, you know, BA was the dude in charge of training some of the best fighter pilots on the planet. Right. So, if he was teaching those guys how to be the best teachers they could be, then BA was pretty mediocre himself, if I would say so. <laughs> yeah. So, world's most average fighter pilot, yeah. you know. Those who don't do teach. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Right. I was the guy in charge of the world's greatest fighter pilots. I'd, I'd phrase it like that. Fair enough. All right. So we're here to, to this episode, start talking about how we got to the F-22. What was the genesis of what is still today probably the world's premier air-to-air fighting platform? So let's go back and talk about the basics of air superiority and air supremacy. And Scar, why don't you launch us into that? Yeah, absolutely, Scott. So for those 
who are, you know, air dominance aviation nerds uh, and proud air power enthusiasts like I am. You have to go back to like what governs exactly what we do. And so if you think of if you go all the way back, that is doctrine. So most of the things that the military, all the things the military does actually at a very high level points all the way back to doctrine. And much of what doctrine is, is the, def, the, the high level definitions of requirements, capabilities and mission statements for the DOD writ large. So platforms fit within the overall ecosystem that doctrine lays out. And much of doctrine is living and breathing because it's written oftentimes in blood based off of what we hear and what we see and what we do in conflicts. And so the most recent example would be our counterinsurgency doctrines were living and breathing certainly over the last 20 years as we learned a lot in the various conflicts we were in, ranging from IEDs to squad tactics, etc. And so much of what we have conducted when it comes to counter air lives in the doctrine publication 3-01. So Air Force Doctrine publication 3-01. For those who are interested uh, in nerding out on this, you can go to doctrine.af.mil and you'll actually find that right at the front page colored under uh, counter air operations. Uh, It's a couple years old, old, the most recent edition, so you won't see something from 2022 or 2023 just yet, but it is uh, still reasonably up to date. Right. And so ultimately, when we, when we think about the scope of control of the air domain, it really does kind of live on a spectrum. Doctrine defines it as a continuum, but ultimately in the middle, you have parity. So that is where we are uh, tied. Nobody actually has uh, definitive control of the air. And if you move one step into the direction of control, you have superiority. Uh, which I'll get into the definition here in just a second. And then on the far end of control, you have what's called air supremacy. You'll often find people talk about air dominance, uh, and Raptor guys would say, yeah, we add an additional capability called air dominance. Uh, that is uh, not uh, doctrinally uh, written down, uh, but it makes us feel better about ourselves. <laughs> and so uh, we're, we're better than air supremacy, we're air dominance. Right. And so uh, I, I'll, I'll turn over to before I get into the definitions, uh, a thoughts ba on on you know on the top level air parity, superiority, or supremacy. Yeah, no, uh, uh, well said, Scar. And it's not just an Air Force issue, right? The Navy and the Marine Corps also has to address this issue with Air Forces. So there's actually um, a joint pub you can also go read about. It's the same number that Scar mentioned, three zero one, and it parodies this one. And then the Navy will have their doctor and Marine Corps as well. And it's no different than when the Army Air Corps turned in the Air Force. In fact, you can go read uh, the War Department's Field Service Regulation, uh, written back in 1940s, I think, you know, 1942 or 43, uh, and it talks about air superiority and says, you know, air superiority is the requirement for the success of any major land operation. Over to you, Scar. Let me just throw it throw in there really quickly. Uh, we're not giving away the keys to the kingdom here, guys, by uh, telling you where to find this stuff, because as B.A. just alluded to, a, Doctrine is, I don't want to say timeless because doctrine changes with technology, but the truisms of how you maintain superiority, supremacy, or or dominance, dare I say, are sort of fundamental. So this, this is a big overarching document that tells you what you're trying to achieve. I just want to throw that out there because we have listeners who, who very rightfully so want to make sure that we're not giving away state secrets here, and we're not. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Doctrine.af.mil or joint 
joint doctrine uh, websites, uh, people in in uh, our our most adversarial countries can also download and read. That's right. And so this is we're not going to share anything that uh, has not been said or, or available in public. Right. And so ultimately, within the continuum, just uh, digging in a little bit deeper on air uh, parity, superiority, or supremacy, those can be even further defined in time, space, location, uh, temporary, or you know, enduring that's on a time scale. And so there may be instances where you have air supremacy throughout the entire area of operations or AOR. Mm-hmm. A perfect example of this would be more or less in Iraq, in Afghanistan. Certainly there may be like small group quadcopters around, flying around, but in, in the large aircraft space, typically thinking about like a, a Predator Reaper or greater performance. So now you're talking about fighters, certainly where the Raptor lives. We had air supremacy mm-hmm. over all of Afghanistan over all of Iraq over the last uh, 20 years. So that was permanent, enduring, in a large scale. Now, we think about how this would be applied in, you know, we can all pray we never go to conflict in against a peer adversary such as China and the Pacific. We may be extremely targeted in a narrow area with a very defined period of time to achieve just barely some air superiority to accomplish a mission. Right, and so you there's a grayscale continuum where we may accomplish a little bit of air superiority for a we'll call it notionally an hour, you know it doesn't really matter, but a small period of time, and then actually give air supremacy back to the adversary, mm-hmm. and so it is for is ultimately to achieve as doctor gets into an effect. It's overall trying to achieve an effect against the adversary, and again, it could be enduring over large spaces of time or very tightly bound. Uh, in time and space. Um, BA, any top offs on that? Yeah, yeah, I'll just, I'll add, uh, Scar, that uh, like you mentioned, we've, we've been pretty successful and we've had some air supremacy, but we've had air superiority for quite a bit of time. Um, in fact, one of the mantra that Air Force uh, air dominance or air to air fighter pilots uh, will go back to is we haven't had uh, an American military ground force member killed from an enemy airstrike since April 15, 1953. So we'll call that tax day. It's it's a it's a, a badge of honor that we wear, and it's more than just a date. You know, it's kind of like a lifestyle, like that we are dedicated uh, to this cause. And like Scar mentioned, you can have some quadcopters flying around, but they're not really impeding freedom of action or movement or operation. Um, but, you know, back in the Korean War, when we lost those last two service members, there are two army service members on Chodo Island. It was just from a, a biplane, you know, so even, yeah, even right. a smaller aircraft mm-hmm. can have an impact. And that's why, you know, even, even though it seems like Afghanistan may not have had a large uh, air presence and maybe Iraq's air force wasn't as big the second time we went in, you still have to set up that air superiority supremacy to protect your ground forces. No, you're, you're absolutely, absolutely right. And just to uh, continue on, this as well, we're, we're hyper-focused. We have been hyper-focused on those like essentially manned uh, assets, but this doctrine also applies to missiles. And so when you pull up this doctrine, you'll see it's actually countering air and missile threats. And so one of the, one of the key tenets here is uh, you may shoot down or be able to defend or offend against a Chinese J-20, uh, which is an extremely advanced, high-end aircraft that we looked at be successful in training and operations against, but if you let that cruise missile through, 
or you let that ICBM through, or you let something else through, then then you actually didn't achieve your goal. And so this is not just manned assets. These are kinetic unmanned assets in the form of missiles or other capabilities uh, as well. Right. And the whole point of why we're having this discussion in an F-22 program is because we need to define the battle space, both literal and, and philosophical, that the F-22 was created for, right? So, so let's take a look at applying superiority supremacy in operational contexts. What is that all about? Yeah, absolutely. So you, at a high level, and then I'll defer to, to BA yeah. to add color, but ultimately within counter air, you break it up into two different buckets. You have your offensive counter air, or we call it in our vernacular OCA, because of course the listeners understand if you're talking about the military, you can't use words, you have to talk about acronyms. <laughs> That's right. And so OCA, offensive counter air, uh, and then you have the other side of the coin, which is DCA, which is defensive counter air. And certainly the Raptor was optimized to fulfill both of those roles. And so BA, throw out some examples yeah. as you desire for, for both of those. Sure. I'll start with offensive counter air. Um, the kind of classic one that we usually go to first is a fighter sweep. And that's, let's say you got a bad neighborhood where you send all your gun-toting guys out there and you just say, kill all the bad guys, right? That's the only mission. So the fighters will go out and sweep and they'll try to clear an area. They're just making sure that the presence <clears throat> is known and that any, you know, kind of prove to them anyone you want to take off against us is going to have a bad day. And then, then those forces, instead of just doing a general sweep over a geographic location, will be assigned to protect an, an, an excuse me an entity, much like a striker. Maybe that B-52 we mentioned earlier. Maybe it's a package of F-16s or F-18s. And we'll call that escort. Sound, just like it sounds, we're going to be escorting them into a location, and then we're going to be escorting them back out of location. We'll probably be in close proximity to them almost all the time. Attention veterans. Obtaining the right medical evidence could make a significant impact on your disability rating. It's easy to feel overwhelmed with paperwork, or you may have no idea how to get started. If your disability rating is at or below 90%, AllVeteran.com is here to help. AllVeteran is a powerful resource that can help you collect the needed medical evidence to support your service-connected disability and potentially increase your rating. Simply visit info.allveteran.com forward slash jello and fill out the form. It only takes a minute. Soon after, you'll be connected with medical specialists who have helped thousands of veterans gather the evidence needed to accurately increase their disability rating. No hassle, just a straightforward way to accurately support your VA disability rating. An increased rating may be easily within your reach thanks to this valuable resource committed to ensuring you receive the benefits you rightfully earned. Get started today by visiting info.allveteran.com forward slash J-E-L-L-O. Those packages, that escort package and the strike package in that case, we'll kind of be married at the hip. We'll do our mission planning together. We'll execute together. In training, we'll do our debrief together. And then if we want to do even more lasting damage, we'll try to suppress their air defenses. So that suppression of enemy air defenses, like Scar mentioned, everything's got to be an acronym. So we call that SEED. Mm -hmm. And that's where maybe along with the fighters, some other fighters will go in, like the F-16 with their harm missiles, and they'll try to kill any enemy air defense systems that decide to come up. So we're suppressing those. We can kill them, we can jam them, but we got to suppress them. And then we're doing all of this so we can do our last offensive counter. That's attack, right? We want to go break the bad guy's stuff. 
So we'll bring our, and that's what the strikers are doing. They're going in, they're going to shoot maybe air to ground munitions. Maybe they're going to drop bombs. So we're going to kill missile sites, airfields, command and control structures, anything that the bad guys could use to wage war against our air forces. Yeah. So when it comes to offensive counter air, it is one of the principal mission sets that a Raptor pilot trains to every day. It is the ability to make sure that B1, B2, you know, other air-to-ground-based package of assets is successful in achieving their mission. So ultimately, on the on the offensive counter-air attack uh, mindset, or even on the, the escort mindset, the mission actually isn't the Raptor getting a kill. Right. The mission is getting that bomb on target on time with the desired weapons effects. And so unless we are conducting sweep, or we'll get into defensive counter air in a second, we actually, as a Raptor guy, or as a Raptor pilot, as Raptor nation, can be incredibly successful and not shoot a single missile, or not shoot a single person down. Right. As long as we achieve overall, in offensive counter air, the desired weapons effects, because the bombs got on target on time, that is uh, the overall goal. It's not painting stars in your jet, as much as what I would love to have that happen over and over again. That is actually not the goal in offensive counter air. So we can't be selfish. It's not about us. It's actually about the bomb. Right. Uh, so now getting transitioning, that's the offensive side. We're taking it to them. Now, PA, uh, if you don't mind expounding on, we are protecting ourselves, whether it be a carrier strike group, our homeland uh, here in America, or our allies abroad. Uh, why don't you expound on that a little bit? Right, right. So yeah, we call it defensive counter. I don't want to... I don't want, uh... I don't want the listeners to think it's too defensive. You know, we're not building a wall and hiding behind it and hope, hoping nothing can get through. We're a little bit uh, aggressive in our defensive counter, but we're going to protect something that's maybe not moving in the manner to go strike something. So it could be moving. So we might be protecting a high value target. Right? That could be maybe we're protecting an AWACS. Maybe we're protecting all of our tankers. It could be that we're protecting a point in space. Maybe a air crew has gone down. And we decide that we don't want anyone flying near him, so we're going to do point defense around that downed air crew. That would also be defensive counter air. Uh, we can set up a no-fly zone. We saw that in Operation Northern Watch and Southern Watch. And we, you message diplomatically. We prefer if you didn't fly here, and then you enforce that. If you fly here, there are some uh, pretty serious uh, repercussions. That's kind of like our active side of air and um, missile defense. Uh, there is a passive side to air missile defense. Obviously, when we're we can. We want to hide the things that we're protecting. Maybe that's our ground forces and we use concealment or we put them in bunkers and we kind of harden them or we disperse them so we don't have another Pearl Harbor where all of our high value assets are in one location. So there's some passive portions to it. But for the fighters, we're mostly trying to stop the bad guys from flying anywhere near what we're trying to protect. And the mission will change drastically based on what the enemy is bringing to bear with respect to weapons. So if they're just dropping dumb bombs, well, sure, I just have to make sure that they blow up prior to crossing this line that's very close to my troops. But they could be launching air-to-surface missiles. They could be launching cruise missiles, you know, where we have to get hundreds and hundreds of miles out in front of them. So it's uh, very dynamic in mission planning as well as in actual execution. Scar, you got anything to add on that? No, I think that's a great example I actually want to pick on like kind of the, the cruise missile defense uh, combination of maybe you may be on a you could be in in a, a DCA mindset hundreds of miles away from what you're actually protecting, right? Because of the the reach out standoff capabilities of our adversaries' missiles, you could be as a as a notional example, 
in the Indo-Pacific AOR as applied to modern day needs, you could actually be conducting defensive counter air in support of Guam's survivability. And Guam is nowhere on the horizon because of the reach out capabilities and standoff distances of our adversaries. And so that is where you may think to yourself, oh, if I'm going to play defensive counter air over Washington, D.C., I'll just fly over Washington, D.C., and therefore I'm defending it. And the answer is no. Where you place yourself in relationship to what you're defending is highly dependent on what the adversary is bringing, just like B.A. said. Right. And I think as we get into the series more, we'll see a lot of the capabilities of the F-22 were designed to accommodate that. And without, you know, giving spoilers or jumping too far ahead to your point, we were developing aircraft in the 1970s to defend an aircraft carrier cap stations 100 miles, 120 miles away from the carrier so they could engage 150, 180 out. And technology's just gotten more advanced since then, to your point, Scar and, and BA. We, the DCA mission is is pushing sometimes as far forward as the OCA. Absolutely, absolutely. And in the Navy, they have to have that defensive counter set up for the carrier so that they can exercise the strike operations out of that carrier. So it's just kind of feeding right. itself, absolutely. Yep, exactly right. And the one thing I will add here as well is the increased sensor requirements in order to facilitate successful defensive counter air. Mm-hmm. And so if you are trying to defend against a bear bomber, your sensors may be set up differently, both from a ground contributing asset as well as an airborne asset like an AWACS. Uh, this could be completely different than if you're looking for a cruise missile. Right. And so those overall DCA, you may see you know, a four-ship of Raptors protecting you know, a defended asset, whatever the asset is, but really they're being fed a network of information. Absolutely. And so that is extremely critical to the success of defensive counter air. All right. Other thoughts on OCA, DCA? I don't want to, to truncate that, but we've defined you know, the goal of what we're looking for, air supremacy. We've looked at the ways we do this operationally, OCA and DCA. But how do we train to those things? How do we get there? Because again, we're driving towards this picture of why the F-22 and what the F-22 is. And we really want to set that foundation for the listeners. So now that we know what we want to do, how do we train the people to do it? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll start off at the very early building blocks, and then I'll pass it off to BA for uh, the it, the advanced courses that you could end up going through. So starts with your commissioning source. Obviously, let's back it all the way up to there. In order to fly a Raptor or fly any asset in, in at least the Air Force, the Army and other, and other services may have warrant officers that are successful in flying rotary craft or others. But if you want to fly the Raptor, which is what we're talking about here, you got to be an officer. So you have to be commissioned, ROTC, OTS, uh, Air Force Academy, uh, etc. And then you have to go to pilot training. So you get picked up for a pilot slot. You can go to one of the handful of pilot training bases. And then you have to do well enough in order to be selected to have a Raptor. And so we are, because of the challenging scenarios associated with what the Raptor pilot will find themselves in, we are looking for the best and the brightest out of pilot training so that they can handle both not just the flying of the jet, but the overall mission sets, which are extremely complicated, extremely high threat, uh, looking for high-skilled people. Now you'll find yourself going uh, to uh, the F-22 basic course. F-22 basic course is actually in the middle of a transition right now of locations. 
It has been on the Gulf Coast of Florida, and it's about to move at the time of recording up to Virginia for, to su be supported out of Langley Air Force Base. That's less than a year long, and I, uh, I'll speak to that because uh, that was my last, my second to last assignment was teaching there for a few years. That is uh, a really well-structured course, extremely stressful for the students, and it starts, honestly, because your first flight in the Raptor is by yourself. There is no two-seater. And so you have to be equipped to save this $150 million asset or eject on your very first flight. And so the first couple months, the book is thrown at you every day. You're learning every nut and bolt of the major systems, subsystems of the jet. You are in the sim all the time. So that by the time you do your dollar ride, as it was called, the very first flight, uh, you're, you start up the engines and you think to yourself, well, in the sim, my engines are usually on fire by now. But everything's working out great. You know, you start taxiing out uh, in live flight. And like, usually my brakes fail. But now they're working great because the sim instructors are trying to make you work hard and see every possible scenario. Because by the time you actually take off on your dollar ride, you've probably flown it 100 times. It honestly becomes muscle memory already. And you haven't even flown the jet yet. But it's because of the, the structure and challenge surrounding that course. Ultimately, it takes you all the way up through uh, full up, uh, reasonably sized missionized scenarios of offensive air, offensive counter air, and defensive counter air. Uh, and then at that point, you head out to the CAF or the combat air forces for your first operational unit. And then I'll pass the upgrade trainings and what comes on, uh, what follows on for a Raptor pilot to BA. Awesome. Thanks, Carp. Uh, I think it's, it's, I'll lead off with an, an interesting point. We kind of made the jest earlier, you know, if you can't do it, teach it. And I know that's common for a lot of specialties. I think in the fighter pilot growth and progression, it, it couldn't be further from the truth where teaching is actually the goal. So our teachers, our instructors, as we call them, they don't necessarily only live at a schoolhouse like SCAR was at for the training squadron or like I was at for the weapons school. They are embedded in the squadron responsible for doing all of these upgrades that I'll speak to. So we, we take a young guy. And we'd say, you know, you can fly your jet, you can fly your jet safely. We got to give you as much experience as we can. So we start them off in 1v1. That's dogfighting, commonly referred to. We call it basic uh, fighter maneuvers. And that's so that he can fly while looking behind him, being super worried about the enemy's gun and not have to look forward to all the instruments. So you can really understand how the jet maneuvers. And then we'll start pitting him maybe. So that's a 1v1, one versus one. And then we'll give him a flight lead. So he'll fly around on his flight lead, do everything his flight lead tells him. And we might have those two fight one, those two fight two, those two fight four. But he's really understanding what are the contracts involved? What am I expected to do, even if my flight lead doesn't say anything in the moment, so that I never leave him hanging, right? I always have his back and I can always protect him and myself. And then we'll grow that into now there's four Raptors and we'll fight, you know, four, five, six, maybe some more. And we get really good at fighting as a F-22 unit. But that is not how we go to war. We don't go to war by ourselves. So then we'll start integrating them in exercises. You've probably heard of the red flag exercises. There's another one up in Alaska that happens every couple of years called Northern Edge. We have these exercises all around uh, the world because it's so important for us to work together as a team to basically train like we're going to fight. And that's with other airplanes. So the F-22 wingmen might be flying in close proximity to or working on contracts with an F-15C wingman. Or he might need to know where a B-52 or a B-1 or an F-16 are so that he can protect them in that escort role we mentioned. 
And then that that training, those exercises will eventually lead to mission rehearsal. We don't hear too often about those because we don't want anyone to know we're rehearsing, you know, what we're rehearsing for, but we'll work all the way up towards mission rehearsal. And once he's mastered all of that set, okay, he's a wingman that can go to war. And then we'll put him right back in the beginning as a flight lead, where now he is in charge of that young wingman. He'll be a flight lead for that entire progression. Once he does that with two jets, we'll start him back at the beginning. We'll make him do it with four jets under his control. Once he's a master of that, then we'll finally let him be an F-22, maybe package lead as part of a defensive counter air. Once he grasps all of that, then we will put him into an instructor upgrade and we'll start him all the way back at the beginning. And that process can take to, to be an instructor pilot usually takes somewhere around three to five years for your average guy. Three would be pretty fast, you know, probably four or five for your average guy. I want to throw out there just really quick some some things for the listeners. So when you talked about contracts right. uh, a little earlier when you're learning to fly, so these are things where there's going to be a pre-planned response to something. Like I think the one is a non-pilot that comes to mind is, okay, if you get spiked and you got to go to the notch, which means for, for the listener, you you know you're being radiated by a radar and you you can turn 90 degrees off, you know, says the air defense guy who never wants to see a guy go to the notch because I want to track you all the way, right? All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thanks for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast and this Authentic Media Snapshot. If you like what you heard, head over to Authentic Media on your favorite podcast platform for complete episodes and a whole lot more. We'll see you next time.